Now, as I mentioned before, we had a, a quick, I mentioned a quick summary of what we dealt with last week. But that portion of text was actually a detour from this main thought that we have here outlined for us from verse 28 and 29. In verse 29, John introduces for the first time in this letter the concept or the idea of being born again. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This is one of the many diagnostic tests John lays out for us within the scripture. And the majority of our time spent today will be spent developing this idea more fully. But I think it's helpful to note that within this epistle, the genre of literature is we won't proceed sequentially as we usually do. We won't do a verse-by-verse exposition, in other words. But we will look at the development of John's thought throughout these seven verses. The passage can really be divided into three parts, or maybe movements of thought is a better way of explaining it. The first is John's foundational claim about sin. The second is this test of genuine Christianity. And the third is why John considers it impossible for a Christian to continue in sin. So let's begin first by looking at John's claim about sin, which is captured in verse 4. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. At face value, the the verse appears to be nothing more than a repetition of the idea that sin is lawlessness. It's as though sin and lawlessness are interchangeable terms, and he's just saying this twice to us. To practice sin is to practice lawlessness. But we encounter time and time again statements such as these throughout this letter. They don't seem to provide us with new information, but rather say the same thing in a different way. Just by way of example, consider in chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, we find John saying, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. But the very next verse says, Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Or later in the chapter it is said, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother. Sorry, this is very distracting to me. Or later in the chapter it is said, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But two verses down it says, Whoever hates his brother is in darkness. So it seems as though John is emphasizing over and over the same points without bringing any new information. He's not building upon an argument like we see within the Pauline epistles. That's not the case. Those are just two examples. But why is it that the letter is structured in this way? Well, we should remember that John is using a literary technique called amplification that is common to the Greco-Roman world and indeed to the Jews at that time. Instead of building on some theological idea and saying, well, this is the implication, and then this, and then that, he instead seeks to deepen and reaffirm attitudes and values that are already held by the recipients of this letter. It's really how most parents go about parenting. 
throughout the formational years of their children. When your child blunders and says something wrong, you don't go back and teach them the alphabet again. You don't do that. You would consider maybe restating the word, saying it again, saying a similar word, maybe placing the emphasis in the right place so that they get it. That's, that's what you would do. That's how you would go about teaching your child. In the same way, John is really circling back over and over again to the same truths to sharpen our awareness and deepen our appreciation of these simple truths, which are basic to Christianity. God is really not unaware of our need of consistent reminders. And that's what the apostle is endeavoring to do as we approach verse 4. He's seeking to remind us about the essential nature of sin. But before we begin to look more closely at what John says about sin, we must first understand that John isn't speaking primarily to the people on the outside, nor the uninitiated. His language is quite broad when he says everyone. It is sometimes too easy to think that books such as these are addressed to people who are sinners. Like, clearly you don't know this. Clearly you don't know that everyone who practices sin is a sinner. Clearly, you don't know that everyone who practices lawlessness practices sin. Clearly, you don't know that. But consider who he's telling these things to. These are not people who have not gone to church or do not care to associate with believers or God's people. It is clear within the context that John is writing to professors of Christianity. These same people were going to gather together and hear this letter read in their Myths. We must appreciate then that these words are for us primarily, not the man on the street, or for, but for those gathered in the household of God. So let's continue looking at verse 4. John ends this verse with a statement about what sin is. He says sin is lawlessness. He provides for us something of the essential nature of sin. Commentators suggest that he's identifying the specific kind of evil that sin is. It's not some passive force that happens upon you when you're sleeping. It's not that there's some calamity that occurs in your life that causes you to err in these ways or to blunder. It's not an external problem that deprives men and women of human happiness or spoils your fun. What John is arguing here. And what we need to come away with fundamentally is that sin is a deliberate act of opposition towards God and his revealed will. It is fixed rebellion towards him, which necessarily involves throwing the reins that God has placed upon us to direct how we ought to go, casting them off, and really taking them and trying to noose God himself and saying instead of you being the lawgiver, I should be the lawgiver. It is doing what the Jews did those many years ago to Jesus when they condemned him to death. They cried with unison, we will not have this man to reign over us. They stripped him of his clothes and, it, and tried to strip him also of his dignity because ultimately they believed that they are Lord of their lives. There was a casting off of the authority of God and indeed a partaking in the first sin that Adam did every time we break God's law. 
Adam willfully disregarded the words of his creator so that he may partake in what he perceived to be part and parcel with divinity. There was a disregard for the statement, thou shalt not, and a bold statement to God, and in his heart at least, not recorded in words of scripture, but in his heart, which said, that I shall. But consider for a moment then, just like him, we aren't blind men walking down a road who stumble in a pothole or something when we sin. John is saying sin is lawlessness. It, it isn't that we are without knowledge or without God's law. That's not what's in view here. He means that our actions betray the very idea that we are under God's law. We act as those who are a law to themselves. That's what John is calling us to see when he says sin is lawlessness. Each and every time we sin, there's a willful act of the mind that seeks to usurp the throne of God and make ourselves the lawgiver. Sin, sin isn't some obscure thing that we have no responsibility for. John won't allow us to blame external circumstances like my mother died or I was on drugs or I grew up in a bad home. He's not allowing us to do that. He gets very personal and says, your issue isn't simply with a set of rules that don't fit the best practices of your life. What he says is that functionally, every time we sin, we don't want this divine person to dictate what we should be doing with our lives. That's the heinous reality of sin. It's not a checklist that you fail to tick off. It's that you're looking at the creator. You're looking at God himself and saying, I will not submit to what you want me to do. But this claim really helps to shape our understanding of the test that follows. R.C. Ryle states most soberly that every heresy that the church has faced over the years has its origin in an incorrect view of sin. And if you think about it, it's really true. It's an overestimation of ourselves. It's thinking about God incorrectly. Every, every heresy has its root in a misunderstanding of sin. And this, this is the second movement of John's thought that he wants to point out. That we understand and know what sin is, and therefore he, he lays this out and says that this is the test of biblical Christianity. This is the test of whether you have experienced genuine religion or not. He begins in verse 4 by explaining what sin is. It's a practice of lawlessness. But he goes a step farther and says, If anyone continues the practice of these things, you do not abide in Jesus. You are not righteous. And without a doubt, you are a child of the devil. That's the type of language he uses in verses 6, 8, 9, and 10. There seems to be no place for nuance here, or any thought of entertaining other notions of some in-between category for Christians. It's either you're this, it's either you are not a practicer of sin, you're not a practicer of lawlessness, or you are. It's one or the other. The plain teaching of these statements made together is that no one who makes a practice of sin can, can consider themselves sorry, to be partakers of the great privileges we spoke of last week. 
that great privilege of sonship. The reason this particular portion was of particular relevance to the believers of that day is because the text provides us with evidence that persons were actually trying to deceive the recipients of this letter into thinking the exact opposite of what John was teaching. He writes within the verses, let no one deceive you. The person that practices righteousness is indeed righteous. There seemed to be an opposition to this teaching, which we can safely assume was that there was some breakage in the linkage between actually being righteous, actually being a son of God, and practicing righteousness. There seemed to be a failure on the part of these deceivers to feel obliged to practice righteousness. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John teaches in verse 6 that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Those who are nourished by Christ, who have been grafted into the vine, who are immersed in him and united to him, are not able to continue to sin. Notice that this statement doesn't preclude the reality of Christian sinning. But it does say that you don't continue sinning. You can't truly know Jesus as your savior and continue in sin. If you do, it simply displays that you have never actually been captured by the glory and reality of the savior. Even if you have heard countless sermons in this church or another, even if you have memorized hundreds of Bible verses and know the scripture better than C.H. Spurgeon himself. What John is saying is that your profession of faith is false if it is that you are continuing in sin. You're not a Christian. But you know every time people bring up things like this, when you confront persons about continuing in sin, you know, checking yourself, consider the state of your soul, what the response is. It goes something like this. Well, we're all sinners. Nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. Why are you looking at me and saying that I'm not a Christian? Or why are you saying that you have a problem with how I live life when, you know, everybody sins? And such claims really boil down to you and me are in the same boat, really and truly. And in a sense, in a sense, it's true. Christians do sin. Christians do commit sin. We shouldn't dismiss the claim that you actually sin in order to try to convince somebody that continuing in sin is a problem. Because then you would just perpetuate a false idea of what Christianity is. Christians do sin. But what we need to see is that John is making a distinction between two kinds of sinners. It is indeed proper to speak of Christians as sinners in one sense, but it is improper to speak of Christians as sinners in another sense. So then where do you draw the line? Well, this portion of scripture teaches there are sinners who live in a way that is characterized by a pattern of sin. It is a practice. They practice lawlessness as we see outlined in this text. Waking moments are spent plotting. How do I get another dose of sin? That felt really good last night. 
how do I do it again tomorrow? But not just overt sins, brethren. Some go about thinking, what is the minimum amount of external conformity to God's law I have to do in order to not arouse any suspicion by people who are in the church? How can I, on the one hand, enjoy myself as much as possibly as I can, but sit in the pews and blend in with, with the people in the crowd? How do I be a tear among the weak? That's how some people think. That's how some people go about their Christian lives. It's these type of persons John has in view when he says, you can't go about practicing sin. He says that these people should lay no claim to being united to Christ or being adopted by the Father. But it's an unfortunate circumstance in this age of tolerance that we live in, maybe falsely called so, that you, you probably have to be a terrorist or something to not be considered a Christian. Unless you've gone about murdering somebody or raping people like Ted Bundy, no one dare lay the, the accusation against you that you're not a Christian. That's the age that we're living in. The age where people are afraid to call you a heretic. People are afraid to say that you're outside of the faith. I don't know if it's because of a perceived insecurity that you yourself when you fall under this scrutiny, may find out that you aren't within the faith? I don't know. But none dare suggest that you can't be Christian on the basis of your works. That's too legalistic. But just think about how John directs our attention to this practice, which finds its origin in our disposition towards God himself. He wants us to think about what is the driving influence in your life and how this is expressed. In other words, what happens when you are alone? What does your mind gravitate to? When there's no one provoking you, the TV is off, the family isn't around, there are no co-workers, are you thinking about building the fame of your own name? Is it all about you, you, and more you? Or are you planning and seeking to figure out day by day just how can I further proclaim the kingdom of God? How best do I respond to this family situation or the next? How do I respond in a God-honoring way? The idea I'm trying to get at, brethren, is that practicing righteousness doesn't simply involve external adherence to God's law, but is the very antithesis of lawlessness. It is a cleaving to the things of God and ultimately a heart towards pleasing Him as we go about our days. These indicatives are laid out for us as impossibilities throughout this, the portion we're looking at. John says consistently, no one who says, whoever practices, whoever says this, no one born of God. He says emphatically, it is impossible for this to be a reality in your life and for you at the same time to be experiencing genuine religion. When John says, no one who abides keeps on sinning, or no one born of God makes a practice of sin. We should understand that saving faith is not present where sin runs rampant in our lives. 
We should therefore guard against any urges that seek to, to say that I'm the exception to the rule. That, yeah, that's true of this person and that person, but not for me. We should guard against that thinking. It's easy to look at your next door neighbor. It's easy to look at the person next to you in the pew. It's much harder to consider the state of your own soul. If our faith is not accompanied by works, we ought not to excuse it away. As I mentioned in last week's sermon, the apostle does not want us to be fooled into thinking that we have saving faith when we don't. Pastor Conrad Mbewe provides a helpful account which explains the gravity of being assured of which side of the fence you're on. He explains that a friend of his was rushing to a conference in South Africa and he wanted, he needed to cross the Zimbabwe River. And obviously to do this, you need money because he doesn't own a boat or can't lug one all the way there. So he went trying to change his Zimbabwe currency for South African currency. And he did so and he got to the boat and for whatever reason, in that place, the custom is you get on the boat and you start driving and then you pay. Kind of like getting on the ZR van. You get on and then later on in the trip, the ZR man asks you for you 350. That's how it works. But in this particular circumstance, as he went over to hand over his rands, as the South African currency is called, as he went to hand it over to him, the boat driver told him that these are fake. And his face fell because he was going to miss that conference for sure. He, the boat driver turned right around and carried him straight back to Zimbabwe. There was no mercy for him. It was too late. He couldn't do anything at that point. He had to simply go back home. But Conrad gives that analogy to point us to this reality of heavenly rands. What of your heavenly currency? Friends, the gravity of this text is shown because ultimately eternity weighs in the balance. On that last day, will you be told that you are holding a bag of hot air when you stand before God as one who lived their life thinking that they were indeed living a life of righteousness, when really and truly all of your life was spent practicing sin. Christ will not receive those who do not practice righteousness. As the scripture says clearly, there is a holiness without which no man shall see God. There is a reason John can speak in such a manner though. He doesn't exude such confidence in what he's saying because he's so convinced about your inward fortitude or your ability to keep the law. John posits that the reason he can speak this way rests upon the work of God in our lives. He makes mention of two acts of God to justify his claim. The first relates to the act of regeneration or new birth, and the second relates to the work of Christ on the cross. So let's consider these in turn. John begins in verse 9 with a bold statement concerning the new birth. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning 
because he has been born of God. John is claiming that something has so changed in the heart of man that it is actually impossible for him to continue sinning. It isn't his natural mode of operation. It's like trying to put a dog to live with pigs and expecting the dog to live like a pig. It's not how the dog lives. That's what John is trying to get, get at. And the reason he gives is because God's seed, or more literally, sperm, abides in him. John isn't trying to suggest that somehow within us there is some vestige of divinity that, that we, we have or partake in. There's only one who's divine and truly begotten of the Father. That's Jesus himself. Rather, the picture being illustrated here is that there is such a closeness of relation between the Father and his children that they share traits with him. Just as so many sons and daughters have not only physical resemblance to their parents, but share too in their quirks and mannerisms. So too do the children of God manifest tendencies which are similar to God their Father. We probably all had that awkward moment when someone tells us that you're just like your dad. When we stood embarrassed before them and told that this act that you do or that act that you do is just like what your dad does. There's no getting away from it. You could lose your birth certificate, lose your ID, lose your passport, but some people will still be able to say, that is Tevin Brown child. That is John Rittisgar child. There, there is such an impression of our parental image stamped upon us that we don't need references to external authority to verify who we are related to. In the same way, though, brothers, so too our deeds manifest the same reality of who we are related to. Either God, as John says, or the devil. The love we now have for the things of God and the hatred for lawlessness characterize all those who are born of him. And the opposite displays a kinship that is more closely associated with Satan and his works. The question then, brethren, is, is your life oriented towards him? Does your witness display this about your life? Though no one can ultimately provide you with assurance about whether you are standing before God as his son or standing before God as his enemy, we can take comfort and we can rely somewhat on others to affirm and encourage us about our standing, especially where doubt is present. But the question still remains, have you personally inquired of yourself prayerfully whether your Christian practice is in keeping with righteousness? How do you assure your own soul if the writings of John aren't the means? How do you think about yourself as being a Christian if the writings that John says, the writings that God has provided to instruct and comfort us that we are within the faith, how do you do it if it's not by relying on this text? What do you do? Do you rely on how someone else thinks about you? Do you rely on what your own perceived notion of yourself is? How do you do it if not by looking at the text and considering, do I fit what this says? 
These are the ordinary means God has given to bolster our confidence, and we ought to make use of it. But all, with all this talk about works, there may be a temptation to think that this is the ground or foundation of our confidence. John is not arguing a justification by works. He is not arguing that ultimately on the last day, what you ought to do is run up to the heavenly gates and see, look, Lord, at the good life that I have lived. That's not the basis of our assurance ultimately. It's not the performance that we've done over our entire lifespan. He means to ground our faith in the works of Christ and Christ alone. And this is the second reason why John is convinced that men and women who are actually Christian, who have actually experienced the new birth, who actually abide in Christ, cannot continue to sin. It is because Jesus has come to destroy the works of the devil. These works John attributes to the devil relate to Satan's efforts to turn people aside from doing God's will and causing them to sin. That's one of Satan's primary works. The other one we'll look at a little bit later. We see that even before the fall of man, Satan was trying to get people to rebel against God. We noted in the narrative of the Old Testament that Satan tried to convince a third of heaven to rebel against God. And after that, he continues this work, trying to get men to commit lawlessness. He leads men to oppose God. But given his localized presence, we can't say that each and every time that we sin, it's because of Satan. That's not what John has in view. But broadly speaking, the worldly system and its agenda seeks to, as much as possible, direct us to sin. Whether it is in TV, whether it is the agenda within our educational system sometimes, a lot of this world is structured so that you and I would break God's law. That's just the way Satan has directed the hearts and lives of men to provoke men to sin. This influence which swayed us every way we went, God has destroyed through the atoning work of Christ. And John reminds his hearers that as sure as the accounts of Jesus' suffering are, so too is this reality of the change in our moral condition. That's what Jesus has effected when John says he has destroyed the works of the devil. He's destroyed Satan's work to make men and women who have been born of God to continue in their opposition towards him. You may have remembered a quote made by John Piper, which I shared many Sundays ago. I won't repeat it now, but in essence, he says that a powerless gospel is not good news. And what he means to say by this is that if the work of Christ on the cross did not effect any change in the lives of believers, how can you speak of any victory of sin? How can you speak about Christ being victorious over sin when those he has applied it to look the same exact way as when they were unregenerate, when they were in the world? How can we speak of victory over sin in that context? The book of Titus reminds us that the reality of Christ's work on the cross has actually effected change in our lives. 
In Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 to 14, it, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for, the, for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the key point who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The objective reality of Jesus' death must be borne out in decreasing patterns of sin in your life. There's no such thing as a, a Christian who says that I can't help keep sinning. That does not exist. If a brother or sister comes to you and says, well, I know that you've been doing this and that or whatever. And you say, well, that's just who I am. Well, true. It could be. But then you just wouldn't be saved. That's what it means. The reality is, brothers and sisters, Christ has effected change in our lives. Your life one day looked like one thing. But now, through the new birth, through the giving of the Spirit, who directs our lives and who influences us to practice righteousness, our lives now look like another thing. The quarrelsome person who you once were, who was always miserable, is peaceable. The person who would spend days on end just watching TV is now putting his hands to the plow and working. That's what Christ has effected in our lives. There's no concept in the scripture of those weak, impotent believers who are unable to overcome their flesh. Surely there will be many losses in the war we wage against sin, but far be it from us to suggest that Jesus' work was of no effect. He has certainly purified the people, the scripture attests to this, who he has redeemed from lawlessness. Should our lives fail to display this on judgment day, we will not be able to hold the gaze of Jesus and say that this was your fault. We won't be able to say that to the Lord. Hardly. On that day, it will merely become evident that you never partook of that heavenly blessing which ensures that you practice righteousness. You were never born again. And what will be reserved for those who have been hoodwinked all this time is simply a fiery expectation of judgment. Friends, if you have not yet partaken in Christ, would you do so today? Christ has not come to this world to dispense God's judgment. You were already condemned in Adam. He has come to take away sins, as the scripture says here. This is actually one of the ways he destroys the works of the devil. The accusation that Satan does for the saints, as his name suggests, the accuser who night and day comes before the throne of God, saying, look at what your child has done. Saying, look at what he has done. How can you lay claim to this person who acts so rebelliously against you? Christ has destroyed that work by freeing us from the guilt of sin, by shouldering its blame and punishment for our acts of lawlessness we commit against him. It is only by taking upon us the righteousness which he provides freely that we can stand before him. The apostle does not ask us to come before God to display our works as the basis of acceptance before him. 
but rather he charges us to look upon the Son who has dealt a death blow to Satan and the power of sin. Look upon the Son and receive from him the forgiveness which he provides. He refuses no one, but has embraced the worst of sinners throughout history. It is on him alone that we lay all of our confidence to assure our hearts before God that we are partakers of eternal life. We don't need to jump through hoops. We don't need to do anything to make Jesus like us. We merely have to come to him with our bare and empty souls, pleading for mercy and having confidence that he will receive us without condition.